Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, July 12th, 2023, the 903rd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So a couple of weeks ago, I did a series of, let's say, more esoteric episodes when I was talking about the informational time machine and foundational misunderstandings. And at the time, I asked for some feedback from subscribers on the Substack 
to make sure no one was too upset about the fact that I wasn't really covering the day-to-day news. I know that some people look to this podcast for that sort of thing. They want to know what's going on in the world and my take about what's going on. And almost all of that feedback was positive. Yesterday, I got a note from a longtime subscriber that was not so positive. I think he was coming from a place where he feels like the esoteric stuff gets covered enough in my work on Badlands and doesn't need to be part of this podcast. Well, I appreciate the point of view, and I don't think it was coming from a bad place, but I fundamentally disagree with that point of view because I don't actually think that the day-to-day news and my perspective on the day-to-day news that's being covered by the mainstream outlets is the most important thing that I can be doing. And I don't think it's the most important thing that people who are awake can be listening to. I understand that these issues pop up on social media or in conversations in public or at work, and people want to have another perspective that they can use to answer these discussions. But I don't think that those discussions are all that important in the first place. And I think that we need to kind of move past them if we're going to move to this next phase. There are people still talking about Bud Light and Target. And I know that I hammer on this stuff often, but that stuff's not important. There are people still talking about COVID policy and vaccines. And that stuff is important, but we already know it. And what we're seeing now is a disclosure phase on stuff that we learned a couple of years ago. The arguments on these issues haven't changed, and I think that most people already know what the arguments are. Do you want to rehash them? I don't really. But if people feel that's valuable and helps them connect to what's going on in their lives and they want more from me on that stuff, you're welcome to tell me that. And I respect that viewpoint. I really do. But I don't look at my role as telling people what to think about what's going on. I don't want to replace the authoritative sources with me as the authoritative source. That is not my goal. I don't want to be the one that everyone comes to for the answers because I don't have all the answers. I want to be the one who's saying, hey, here are a few ways of thinking differently about this topic. And I think this way might be what's going on. And then we track narratives over time to figure out if we are actually fine tuning our ability to discern truth and project what's going to happen so that we can make good decisions in our lives. I think that this is something that everyone can do. I don't think I'm special. I think I engage a thought process while trying to be as open-minded as possible. And I continue to try to track as objectively as I can when we see the stories in reality as they develop map onto the picture that we have already created and attempted to understand. Again, I try to gear only toward the awakening and toward the thought processes that I believe will speed that awakening along and then stabilize things once that awakening occurs at a critical mass. And as I talked about in the episode on informational time travel, and as I've said many times, I think one of the ways to do that productively and to be able to move away from the mainstream media and the authoritative sources is to consistently be far out ahead of the narrative and to figure out how we can do that consistently. And here's an example. When the Hunter Biden laptop story first came out in the fall of 2020, one of my first reactions to that was, 
Well, all these people already know. Everyone on Trump's side already knows. Everyone on Biden's side already knows. So how in the world do we get this decrepit, degenerate, pervert, and career political criminal as the Democrat nominee? Was this just a setup and a fake out? What's going on here? And I propose that what's going on might be Joe Biden makes the perfect fall guy for the regime. They want to do the great reset. They need to crash the economy. They want the controlled demolition. They have told us their plans. So who would they have execute something like that? Well, it would be great if it went down under a guy like Joe Biden, who they can just send walking on down the plank and be done with. Barack Obama, the Clintons, everybody can just say it was Joe Biden the whole time. Look at Joe Biden tied to everything. Joe Biden and his family are responsible for all of this political crime and corruption. And certainly Joe Biden and his family are responsible for political crime and corruption, but they're certainly not the masterminds. They're not the ones in control of everything. So it would be the perfect mechanism by which the regime could get all of the policies enacted after stealing an election and then pacify the country's anger about the president doing all that to them without having to give up power. And here we are almost three years later with that theory still intact as a possible explanation of the end of the Biden regime. We now have this potential conclusion in full view of the American public and anyone who's been thinking about this and tracking it for three years can see that and can understand it. So when it happens, you're going to be able to explain it to other people. Now, I'm not saying I gave that to you. Many of you might have had the same thoughts this whole time, or maybe you have a different version or a different twist and your theory tracks and maybe you'll be right and I'll be wrong. But the point is, we want our minds there and thinking about these things so that when we witness events emerge and stories emerge in reality, we know where to place them on our mental map of the world and of what's happening in the big picture. So thinking about an episode like yesterday where I discuss kayfabe, kayfabe sounds like it's one of those out there subjects that people use to explain things that don't fit their theory. Oh, this thing is just fake. And I get why that's problematic for people. I really do. I bristle about the kayfabe thing as well, except for the fact that it also happens to be real. Does it apply as much as people think it applies? Probably not. But then for every one of those circumstances, there's probably a situation that we imagine is 100% real and isn't. That's the world we live in. There's no certainty on things like that, which is why we have to be sure to be looking at things both ways. And one of the mental paths into being able to do that is considering kayfabe, considering that the conflict you see might be fake. We know they do it, so it's wise to expect they might be doing it this time. And that applies to every time. And here's the thing. Understanding that kayfabe might apply in a given circumstance makes it possible for us to avoid the emotional reaction that might lead us to do and say things that will not only get 
the situation wrong, but they are going to lead us emotionally to a bad place, a place where we might make mistakes that are hard to pull back from, and we might lead other people to make similar mistakes. There's a big difference between saying Ron DeSantis is running against President Trump to help cover up stolen elections in our country, which is tantamount to treason. Ron DeSantis is an evil man who should be hung and saying all of that is true if this is real, but it might not be real. There are reasons to believe that Ron's role in particular is not real. And in that case, what he might be doing is taking a major PR hit and having a lot of terrible things said about him in order to serve some higher purpose for our cause. And in the event that that might be true, it's important that we temper our words and actions so as not to make this overly emotionally reactive which allows us to prepare for both outcomes. Being able to see the Ron Shadow campaign eight months ago and properly analyze it and prepare for what's coming from the people running the comms and the info op and trying to handle that in an even-handed way is far better than ignoring it completely throughout the fall and the spring and then just following the media narrative as Ron's campaign finally launches in late May of this year, seven months after it actually launched. The goal for me is not to make correct judgments on the news every day as it comes out. The goal is to stay far ahead of that mainstream pace so that we can be making decisions and judgments as early as possible. We want to be right as fast as possible because the answers matter in terms of guiding our lives. There are people right now thinking about the financial future. Maybe you need to get into gold. Maybe you need to get into Bitcoin. If they are right on those things, that could make a significant difference in their lives, which is why it matters. Now, to the extent that my thought process helps people understand things earlier than they would have otherwise, including myself, by the way, this is a process for all of us. But if that thought process helps people understand what's going on and helps them understand how to make these decisions well, then I want to be able to impart that thought process properly on other people and say, here are the things that I think about. This is the way I look at these situations. And if you're looking at these situations too, then you might have insights I don't. And when you tell me those, that helps me refine my thinking. And when I analyze your thoughts, that might help you refine your thinking. And then we all advance together. That is what I want. And some of these concepts really do matter. The kayfabe concept matters if Ron DeSantis is indeed a kayfabe op. It's going to matter if, as many people think, Bill Barr and Mike Pence and Chris Ray and some others are part of kayfabe ops. Now, I don't know if that's true, but smart people do think it, and we should at least be open to it in the event that that's what emerges. And it's hard to process something like that in a sophisticated way if you've never thought about what kayfabe is. If the concept was just something people had pulled out of their ass, okay, but it's not. We know that it happens in all different phases of life, and we know that it happens in politics, so it has to be taken seriously. So I understand that some of this stuff may seem esoteric, but the fact is it's real. And if it's real, then this is how the world works, 
And what we're trying to do is understand how the world works and how politics works so that it can become something predictable to some degree, knowable to some degree, not something that's just so complex and confusing that we have to turn to the mainstream media and to influencers on Twitter and Instagram to be able to understand what's going on. We need to be able to understand these things ourselves, and we can as long as we've trained our brains on how the system works so that we can see the system at work. You know, I said yesterday that the reason it was important to understand the kayfabe concept and to understand the Ron situation is because we need to win all the important arguments, which first means understanding which arguments are important. If a lot of people think the wrong thing about something important, that is an argument that we must win. And again, winning doesn't mean we're pronounced the winner. It means that we have thoroughly convinced people to give up the other belief. We don't want to shut them down. We want them to see it for themselves so that they will be making sincere arguments of their own for the same viewpoints. And hopefully those viewpoints are well thought out and firmly grounded in reality and moral. And in order to win the arguments we need to win, we need to know which arguments are the ones we must win. Now, on Monday, we talked about Owen Benjamin being concerned that the sound of freedom and the reaction to it and the promotion of it was a psyop designed to lead us into hyper demoralization. Everyone would now understand the problem. They would believe the problem is too big. They are too small. They don't have enough power to solve the problem or do anything about the problem whatsoever, and then they would become more demoralized than they were prior. All they would have done is funnel their money to these film producers who produced a film in order to demoralize them. Now, I said I thought that was a black-pilled viewpoint, but not an invalid viewpoint, because I think that exactly what he's describing was true and effective in the past, but that that effect has begun at least to wear off. And that's because people are waking up. All of those techniques that can be used for evil can also be used for good if people are awake and responding to them correctly. I can totally allow that he is absolutely right about the methods, that those methods have been employed in the past effectively, and that those methods may even be employed by these people right now. I mean, I don't know the people. I don't know their character. I can make judgments. They seem like they're okay. But maybe Owen Benjamin is right. And they really are running a psyop to demoralize everyone while profiting from it. They're taking people's energy and redirecting it for their own evil purposes. I have no problem admitting that that is possible. And this would be the method they would use and that they have used in the past. But I also think that it's not the method in itself, that's evil. It's what the method is being used for. And if people aren't responding to it in the way they intend people to respond, then their method is actually bringing people in the opposite direction, which is good for us. I talked about going back the same way from which you came. We're talking about an enemy who has gotten very comfortable with their grip on power bordering on cockiness and indestructibility. They think their power is unassailable. And generation after generation, as they hand power down through nepotism, 
And as the compromise and corruption of the people in power continues to grow, they become more incompetent because they're handing power down to incompetent ne'er-do-well children and grandchildren. And that's not to say that there aren't competent people in their system. There certainly are. But their system isn't a meritocracy. And because it isn't a meritocracy, over time, it will actually self-destruct as it continues to select candidates for power who cannot handle the power they're given. So not only are they increasing in incompetence, but people are discovering it at a faster and faster pace. They're getting worse at their job at the same time as people are realizing what the job is they're doing. So it's not a matter of the methods they're using or their goals or how those methods might have worked in the past before. It's a matter of how people are perceiving it and taking it in. And if those people are attached to reality and they are awake and aware, then they know the response to sound of freedom is not think the government's going to do something about it or get super demoralized. I have no doubt there are people that took it that way and who are generally demoralized and generally blackpilled. And that's sad. And I think that they will probably come around and be okay. But those people are tired right now and they're frustrated right now because it's not that hard to lose faith and think that nothing's happening. But I really do think we've turned a corner on this and I don't think that people are responding the way the regime anticipated they'd have responded. People might remember Ian Smith, the guy with the big beard who owned that gym and kept his gym open during COVID, I think from New Jersey. He posted about the movie, taking kind of the same view that Owen Benjamin did. He said, everyone rushed to post The Sound of Freedom, the rights equivalent of the BLM Black Square. You've done your part now. Hashtag save the children, open your wallets and all that good shit, I guess. Now, maybe he's right about that. I don't think he is. I was in Hollywood when that whole black square thing happened. That was pure virtue signaling and everyone knew it. People's agents and managers were telling them to post that. We can be certain that wasn't happening for the sound of freedom. There is a very limited number of people from Hollywood supporting that film. It's certainly not all of Hollywood. If all of Hollywood wanted to support that film, they'd have the mainstream actors posting about it. They would get the people on their side to go see it. If it was all just this awareness campaign meant to breed hyper demoralization, that didn't happen. But he raises some totally reasonable, worthwhile questions. He talks about how Hollywood actually did release this movie. Maybe it's an independent film company, but it was in thousands of screens across the country. So somehow that distribution came together. Interesting point. Maybe there's something there. Maybe there's not. Talked about how Carlos Slim is reported to be one of the funders of the movie. He is a Mexican oligarch, essentially. He's connected to the World Economic Forum, to the Clintons, to some of the other best people in the world. You know, the philanthropists. He's a supporter of the Skybridge Project at Phoenix International Airport, which is seen by many people as a project meant to facilitate the trafficking of illegal goods and perhaps people. Ian Smith goes into Tim Ballard and his project called Operation Underground Railroad. 
And he essentially lays out a long list of reasons to be doubtful about what's going on behind the scenes when it comes to Sound of Freedom. And all of those may well be realistic and important concerns. There may be answers to those questions. We don't have all of them yet, certainly not in a way that's going to satisfy doubtful people. And so it makes sense why some people would take the film and want to keep it at arm's length, not get overly invested in promoting it, etc. And then he offers up this possible reason for why these people might be involved in promoting this and exposing the world to this being a real problem. Well, how would you protect these children who might be trafficked? Well, one easy way would be to know where they are all the time. Well, how can we do that? Well, we can just put a microchip in them and then track them through GPS, just like people are encouraged to do with their pets. That's been around for well over a decade. You put a little tiny microchip into your pet. It's the size of a grain of rice. And now you will never have to worry about losing your pet. You think your pet's lost? Well, you just call the service that tracks that little microchip and there your pet is. And so what do we have? We have well-intentioned people doubting this film, thinking that there's something shady about the film, finding a list of reasons to suggest that there is indeed something shady about the film. And then they propose what might be happening in the future as a result of this, what this effort might be geared toward. And so we have that to think about and we have that to watch for. We can look out for this because we know it in advance. If they're right, then that trend will continue to progress. And at some point we will understand, yes, that's definitely what that was for. It's good to be thinking about this in advance. It's not that we hate the people who made the film or we think they're bad or we're going to turn our backs on the film immediately. It's just also important to maintain a balanced perspective. There are plenty of positive things. There are a few negative things. We don't have to deny any of it. We can just continue to move forward and analyze these new things as well. And here's how I'm inclined to respond. Well, yes, as I've said before, these are methods that we have seen in the past. These have been deployed in the past. They have been effective in the past. There were plenty of people ready three years ago to accept vaccine IDs and permanent tracking just to avoid the spread of COVID in the misguided effort to just go back to normal. Well, I don't think people are going to do that now. If they started rolling out a program that said they want to chip your kids, people wouldn't just be like, oh, yeah, that human trafficking problem that we are denying exists is so severe that we're going to let them chip our kids after seeing what happened in COVID. That is not going to be a big seller to people. People who start looking for information on child sex trafficking are going to eventually run into people like all of us who would say, yeah, it's a real problem. And they would say, what do we do? Should we chip the kids? And we would be like, hell no, that is a terrible answer to this problem. So these guys could be entirely right about the methods and entirely right to bring up these reasons why we might doubt what's going on, why we might be hesitant and skeptical about what's going on. But the truth is we should be that way in response to absolutely everything. And there's nothing wrong with it. It doesn't mean that we are bad people who are casting aspersions on the filmmakers. And it doesn't mean we don't care about the problem. It just means we're keeping things in perspective. The movie is the movie. It can have bad effects. It can have good effects. But ultimately, it is entirely separate from the actual problem of child sex trafficking. So again, it's not the method. 
It's not all of this information. It's how we respond to it. And can we respond rationally and effectively to this? I think it's absolutely important that they are highlighting what the trick is so that people can recognize the trick and not fall into that trap. I give them credit for that. I'm not sure the analysis is entirely correct and that the conclusions they're drawing are correct. I would also suggest that if what we are worried about is hyper demoralization, perhaps the hyper demoralization comes from people who are telling everyone that upon seeing this film, it was actually bad and destructive for them to have gone to see it and that they can't actually fix the problem. It seems to me like they might be inadvertently aiding in the hyper demoralization. And I'm not making that as an accusation. I'm just saying that it might be one of the net outcomes of something they are doing with the best of intents. You have to always look at it from both perspectives, because here's the thing. The movie is out there regardless. You can't take it out of existence. And if awake people are consuming the content intelligently, then even if the film was put out with purely evil intent, it's not going to work. We have to learn how to play the cards on the table, not complain that we need different cards. The movie is out. This is what it is. The child sex trafficking problem in the world is real. Do we solve that by committing ourselves to this movie? No. But can the problem be solved without mass public awareness of the problem? Also, no. And mass public awareness of the problem actually has a lot of other good effects in terms of speeding the awakening forward. I agree with these guys that there are some very strange things going on with how the film is being handled. I think it's odd that Fox News is talking about it and having people associated with the film on their air. That means we might be viewing something incorrectly when it comes to Fox News or incorrectly when it comes to the film and its producers or potentially both. But the way to get past that problem is not to split up into different camps, either staunch defenders of the film or staunch critics of the film, and then attempt to wage battle with the people who disagree with you until everyone is sick of the entire subject. And I'm not saying it's not important to find out the answer. I think it is important to find out the answer, which is why we should continue to observe the situation with an open mind. So changing subjects without a segue, let's get into some current events. We discussed last week after the judge's decision came down in Missouri versus Biden to temporarily enjoin the government from having interactions, conversations, making suggestions with these outside organizations and social media platforms about what they should censor. The Biden administration appealed that decision. Their appeal was denied. And this conversation has been started around a truly Orwellian phrase, cognitive infrastructure. So I mentioned that last week, and then I was listening to Matt Taibbi's podcast, America This Week, with Walter Kern, who is just a great guy, great author. And they were talking about cognitive infrastructure and the idea that thoughts could be considered infrastructure. There has been some reporting in the past on this. In a piece last December for Uncover DC, Wendy Strock Mahoney wrote, Uncovered DC has written extensively about how CISA, that's the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, 
has designated Americans' thoughts as cognitive infrastructure because they've declared what Americans decide to write on social media as infrastructure. They have decided that it also falls under their purview to manage and control. CISA and Easterly have been taking steps for years to make cognitive infrastructure stronger in their image, of course. To most, that means propaganda. To CISA, it means censorship and control while ensuring only approved narrative is available for consumption. In 2018, Easterly and Joshua Geltzer co-wrote a column about the evaporation of trust in elections. She and her colleague opened the piece by thanking special counsel Mueller for his indictments related to the 2016 election. They also thank Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg for his testimony on, in his words, fake news for foreign interference in elections and hate speech on the platform. However, it is in the second paragraph the pair writes about the assault on trust in the digital age, indeed an assault on what's arguably our most critical asset, our cognitive infrastructure. They refer to this assault on trust as a disease, referencing a column on just security by Jonathan Morgan and Rene DeResta. Rene DeResta is one of the key people in the censorship regime. She is one of the top disinformation collaborators at the Election Integrity Partnership. Easterly and Geltzer write about America's cognitive infrastructure and their quest to, quote, shield it from assault and to, quote, protect the human operating system. They write, America's adversaries have weaponized information or really disinformation to infect Americans' perceptions of what is true and even of truth itself. What's more, their efforts have been deliberately embraced and amplified by politicians and media outlets here at home. No longer are facts such stubborn things, quoting John Adams. America's cognitive infrastructure, they say, is, quote, foundational to our country's economic and political health. And so cognitive infrastructure has been talked about as the thoughts, the thoughts themselves being the infrastructure. It's not roads and bridges and airports and schools and hospitals and libraries. It's thoughts. The idea being that all of these thoughts have to be secure in their structural integrity. We need all of these thoughts to be the thing they're supposed to be. That is our cognitive infrastructure. And so I started thinking about infrastructure and a lot of that infrastructure is there to supply citizens with what citizens must need and the transportation routes to get all of that there. It's kind of a network, a system. And so I was thinking about what that would mean from a cognitive perspective, especially in what we know this current technological iteration of what the info stream is right now. We know that the data is collected. It is analyzed through algorithms, employing artificial intelligence, and then all of that information is used to manipulate and exploit the citizenry. They want people to have the right ideas collectively and then behave in certain ways collectively on the basis of those ideas they hold or on the desires that are created in them, their buying choices, etc. They want the entire network of minds operating as that system. And that is a bit of a darker view on what cognitive infrastructure might be. They are trying to build a network of minds in the collective sense that is going to work to help them achieve their goals and their agenda. 
That's what the cognitive infrastructure is. And so I've been thinking about this over the past few days, knowing that this idea has been out there. These people have talked about this idea using this phraseology. They don't just generally pluck these words out of nowhere, and they don't just generally use them metaphorically. They have the metaphorical meaning. They like to use the evocative imagery. And in this case, the infrastructure, that word itself has a critical importance in how it interacts with other laws about how the country is allowed to protect its critical infrastructure, particularly since election systems have been named critical infrastructure. So they have that use for the word, but there is also a literal sense in which they mean it as well. And I wanted to get some more background on that. And it turns out that on the site wikispooks.com, there is an entry on cognitive infrastructure. Historically, when new infrastructure appeared, it was usually explicitly and commercially important. Think of the canal systems and then the railroads that knit together the United States or the birth of electric infrastructure in the 1900s. These examples may be quite complicated, but they are single intelligible systems. Cognitive infrastructure, however, is a meta infrastructure. And let's pause just for a second on the word meta, because a lot of people use meta to mean small or something within something else, but that's not really what it is. A meta philosophy is the philosophy of philosophy. Metacognition is thinking about thinking. So meta infrastructure would be the infrastructure of infrastructure. It involves accelerating capability and capacity across a number of seemingly unrelated systems and technologies, including 5G communication networks, artificial intelligence, and big data analytics programs, social media, interconnected appliances and devices, media creation and manipulation tools, cloud storage, and more. Moreover, it is institutionally complex communities and institutions ranging from activist groups to private firms to militaries develop and use elements of cognitive infrastructure. The article actually quotes Sissa's Jen Easterly. She says one could argue we're in the business of critical infrastructure and the most critical infrastructure is our cognitive infrastructure. So building that resilience to misinformation and disinformation, I think, is incredibly important. This should be seen not only as an admission that they want to control people's thoughts and that they do control people's thoughts, but that they prioritize controlling people's thoughts. They need to control people's thoughts without controlling people's thoughts. Their system as constructed is at risk. And try to picture how this must look from this perspective. Talk about 200 million Americans, let's say, with their cell phones in hand, all individual nodes of the American cognitive infrastructure, this network of 200 million minds feeding data in and then being manipulated by that data as it's repurposed and fed back to them. They will respond and feed their data back in where it is once again analyzed and manipulated to exploit the people consuming the data and then producing the data. It just goes back and forth through each one of those individual nodes, and then it goes to all of the other individual nodes. And so that process is happening all at one time in real time, 200 million nodes within this critical infrastructure. So what happens when 
half of those nodes begin to understand what's happening and how they're being exploited. And then they begin to disconnect or they start to actively participate in defying the agenda of that network. Think about it like an electrical grid. People have seen the pictures of North and South Korea. South Korea at night is all lit up. They are an advanced society and North Korea barely has any lights on because they are not an advanced society. It's easy to see who has the high functioning electrical infrastructure and who doesn't. So imagine a big city where you know that the entire city has that high functioning electrical infrastructure and then just 30% or 40% or 60% of that just goes out. And all of a sudden you have these big black patches everywhere where the lights aren't on, where the electricity is not running. That would be a major crisis for those people in that area. And we're in a situation where these people who are looking at this from a position of power and control, they see 30 or 40 or 60 percent of that cognitive infrastructure just go off and not even just go off, but begin actively turning itself against them. Well, that has to be rather horrifying. The fake president's administration and the media organizations supporting the regime do seem to be horrified by this. They spent last week arguing that it was actually suppressing the First Amendment to block Biden administration officials from demanding censorship from the social media companies. And they told us that our national security would be at threat if they weren't allowed to relay certain threats to the social media companies. But the judge's order didn't bar those threats. So what we really have is the illegitimate Biden administration trying to keep their grip on the cognitive infrastructure in place. They want it to continue working for them, but it's not working. This is Mark Mitchell, the pollster from Rasmussen this morning on War Room. Listen to some of these statistics. And again, I don't think that polls are the be all and end all. I'm sure that these numbers aren't an exact picture of what the American populace really thinks. I think that polls will always end up with results biased toward the mainstream, always. But it is still worth tracking poll results over time, especially by the same company. And Mark Mitchell mentions near the end of this interview that he's employed the exact same methods that he's been employing since before the 2020 election. So the point is not just what the numbers are, but where the numbers have gone over time. Mark Mitchell, what does your polling show you, sir? It is about institutional trust. If you want to know my honest opinion, I think what is happening is that the media landscape changed. There are independent news sources. There is uncensored technology out there. And people are, you know, the public opinion, it isn't, it doesn't move fast enough for people to keep up with backroom deals, what's going on in D.C., but they're going to find out now and they feel like they're getting burned by these things. And I think the American people are just being burned too many times. Um, you talk about the military. I think they know what's happening because we have a president that 63 percent of Americans think is profiting from foreign governments and pay to play schemes. And almost 50 percent of Americans think that China is our enemy right now. So we have a president that most Americans think is profiting from our enemy. And that's where we at. And I can I can rattle off a list of appalling figures. But I think the big thing that the takeaway for me is this isn't this isn't an Obama Obama Romney election. 
I hear things like we need to move forward or we need to restore faith in our institutions. I, I almost wonder if we're past that, especially for Republicans, because just to run through a few of these, 65 percent of voters think we're covering for China on COVID, 77 percent of Republicans. 65% think the Capitol riot was provoked by federal agents, 74% of Republicans. 64% think the FBI is politically weaponized, 80% of Republicans. 59% say the media is the enemy of the people, 77% of Republicans. I can go on and on, but I mean, some of these are just mind-blowing. Half of Americans think that the vaccine caused a significant number of deaths, 56% of Republicans. And finally, from yesterday, 42% of voters and almost half of Republicans think that our own federal agency was complicit in the death of a sitting president. And I just don't know how you move forward or return to normalcy off of something like that. It's just a political climate I don't think we've ever seen before. Now that, my friends, is caused by a breakdown in the cognitive infrastructure of the country. People are not going back to sleep. Those ideas are ideas that cannot be avoided, and those ideas will be agreed upon by everyone eventually. You know that it is headed in that direction. It has been headed in that direction for years, and look at the point we've reached. We're not going backward. We're only going forward in that direction. They're not going to put people back to sleep on that stuff. People aren't going to get tricked back into believing the mainstream media. There are going to be people here and there who get blackpilled or lazy or incentivized and they'll go off in a bad direction. That's going to happen. But by and large, people have moved beyond it and massive numbers of people moving beyond that at the same time and becoming part of the force that moves other people beyond it opens up a world of possibilities that would have been unimaginable before. And it makes it impossible for the regime's methods to have the effect they used to have. We have to play the cards we're dealt and we can't complain and get new cards. So we have to play those cards. Whatever happens, we have to figure out how to make those cards work for us in every situation. That's the goal. And that's ultimately how we need to approach life. We don't always get to choose. Sometimes the choices are made for us, and it's up to us to figure out how to respond effectively. That's the situation we're in. And as more people come in this direction, the responses will improve and our ability to implement the proper responses will improve. And let's think about some examples. I've used some of these examples a bunch of times. Last year, we had the Mar-a-Lago raid, and we were told that MAGA extremists were going to go after federal law enforcement. A couple of days later, we got a story about how a man had gone to the FBI field office in Cincinnati and attacked the field office with either an AR style rifle or a nail gun. And Chris Ray in his testimony today before Congress actually had to address that story, still just repeated the central narrative, the official story on that event. But what happened with that event? We were told about it. A few hours later, we were told there had been some car chase and he was eventually gunned down and killed. And then we heard some stories about how he had been on Truth Social for like two or three weeks, had some crazy Fed posts, and then his account was taken down by Truth Social. 
That was all meant to prove that he was a MAGA extremist. Therefore, MAGA extremists were trying to attack federal law enforcement. Therefore, it was very, very dangerous for anyone to get mad or express any sort of doubt or disappointment about the raid of Mar-a-Lago. Well, that story went away about as fast as it appeared because no one believed it and the narrative itself was being mocked. It was going to backfire, so it just disappeared. A few months later, last November, we had a story about how Russian missiles ended up landing in Poland and killing two people, and that was going to trigger Article 5 of NATO, and the United States military would now have to go to kinetic war with Russia in a real declared sense on behalf of NATO, not this shadow sense where we just send money and mercenaries and intelligence and weapons to Ukraine while pretending that Ukraine is fighting this war. Well, all the usual suspects went hook, line and sinker on that. The Kinzingers of the world, the Vindmans, the Filipkowskis of the world. They were all very concerned about Russian missiles in Poland and NATO's response. We must go to war and defeat that evil Vladimir Putin. Well, within a few hours, it was proven that they were actually stray Ukrainian missiles that had ended up in Poland, not Russian missiles. And World War III was temporarily averted. We've been told fake story after fake story after fake story about the Ukraine war trying to ramp up into World War III, and it hasn't worked. A couple of weeks ago, we were told that Evgeny Prigozhin and the Wagner Group were marching on Moscow to depose Vladimir Putin. And then they just turned around and went to Belarus to hang out instead. And now Putin and Prigozhin are back on good terms. We had about an 18 hour freak out by all of the usual suspects telling us Russia was about to go down and they would ultimately be defeated by Ukraine. Now that Wagner had left Ukraine to go depose Vladimir Putin. How did we react? I immediately said, hey, guys, that's obviously fake. You know how that's obviously fake? Because it doesn't make any sense whatsoever with everything we know to be true about this situation, or at least everything we know that we've been told that is completely false about this situation, because you actually need to believe all that false information to think that something like that coup could possibly happen. So as long as you understand that they have been lying about this Russia-Ukraine thing the entire time, then you don't believe any of those foundational claims that would have to be true in order for the coup to make sense. Therefore, you immediately know it's false. It is amazing what we can determine and discern and analyze by knowing the background on a given situation when that situation comes up in a critical sense in the news. Ten years ago, all of those stories would have worked. The FBI field office thing, people would have freaked out. They probably would have supported further censorship of American citizens in response to that. They probably would have supported NATO intervention because Russian missiles ended up in Poland. They would have believed that Vladimir Putin was about to be overthrown and perhaps maybe would have supported U.S. action. This is the time to strike when Putin is at his weakest. These are the techniques of the regime. These are the psyops of the regime. We used to always fall for them. Now we don't. 
That's because of these cracks in the cognitive infrastructure and our ability to work outside of that. It's why it's so critical for us to understand these situations as early as possible so that we know how to react to them when they arise. Why didn't the talking heads on television or the hosts of Twitter spaces or the very powerful influencers online know that that coup was entirely fake? Well, how would they know? They spend their time letting everyone know that they are always able to tell who has the wee-wees and who has the hoo-hahs. They spend their time talking about the woman yelling on the airplane or what Jonah Hill's ex-girlfriend is saying. But none of that matters. And so last weekend, we saw the riots in Paris. We were told it was from police violence against a North African Muslim immigrant. And so all of the other Muslim immigrants decided to attack buildings and burn down the city. And all of the very serious intellectuals set about figuring out every single detail of the cops and the victim and his history. And they wanted to tell us stories about Muslim immigrants in France and that history, except none of that matters at all. The only thing that matters was that it was obviously a coordinated, well-funded effort at a color revolution whose purpose was to overthrow Emmanuel Macron. There was a hashtag campaign, hashtag France has fallen. Well, what does France has fallen mean from a regime perspective? It means they no longer have control over France. None of that analysis is possible if you are addicted to the central narrative and only engaging with the official story rather than understanding the background of the situation and the context into which that situation fits. What makes more sense? This is all a natural uprising about police brutality or this is a well-funded, well-organized color revolution in order to destabilize France and overthrow Macron when the situation is a direct parallel to what we saw in this country in 2020, a well-organized, well-funded color revolution to destabilize our country and overthrow a sitting president through a stolen election. The analysis was true while it was happening. The people analyzing it as that at that time were correct. We can see that clearly now in history. And so it's wise not to repeat those mistakes when analyzing the French situation. Now, why would the global regime want to take out one of its own, Emmanuel Macron, a former banker, obviously an asset to the global agenda who has pushed that agenda forward? Well, over the past couple of years, he hasn't pushed that agenda forward quite the way they've wanted him to. There were complaints that France didn't go hard enough in support of Ukraine. Then a couple of weeks ago, Emmanuel Macron was reported to have been flirting with BRICS. He was trying to elbow his way into the BRICS meetings. And what could be more horrifying from a global regime perspective than a country like France having been flipped from a staunch ally to a powerful adversary. What could be worse than France aligning with Russia and China and all of these other countries in the BRICS alliance against the global regime? Would that be a justification for launching a color revolution in France to take out Emmanuel Macron? Well, yeah, it might be, but that's not all. 
We also have Macron opposing the opening of a NATO office in Japan. And some of this was first reported on a month ago. The Guardian ran this article on the 6th of June. France opposed to opening of NATO liaison office in Japan, official says. France is unenthusiastic about a proposal for NATO to open a liaison office in Japan. An official has said days after the French president, Emmanuel Macron, said the move would be a big mistake. There have been suggestions alluded to most recently by the NATO secretary, Jen Stoltenberg, that the organization would open an office in Tokyo, its first in Asia, in response to the growing challenge posed by China and Russia. So the regime wanted to open a branch of NATO on the other side of China and Russia, you know, on the side closest to the United States, so that they could continue to militarily threaten these two leading countries in the BRICS currency alliance, who also happen to be the two countries the regime most wants to go to war with, first over Ukraine and then over Taiwan. Now we have the NATO countries meeting in Vilnius, Lithuania, and this report today in Reuters. NATO leaders send mixed messages in Japan office controversy. NATO leaders sent mixed signals at their summit on Wednesday on a possible plan to open an office in Japan, which has been blocked by France and criticized by China. Asked about the plan at a press conference at the end of the summit in Vilnius, French President Emmanuel Macron said NATO should keep its focus firmly on the North Atlantic region. And after all, it is called the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. But NATO Secretary Jen Stoltenberg said the idea of a liaison office in Tokyo was still up for discussion. Alarmed by China's growing military power, the United States has pushed for the transatlantic alliance to share expertise and build ties with Asian countries such as Japan, South Korea, Australia and New Zealand. NATO officials have said the proposed Japan office would be small with a staff of only a few people focused on building partnerships and would not be a military base. And they'd never lie about that stuff. Macron said he agreed that NATO should have partners with other regions with whom we manage major security issues in the Indo-Pacific, Africa, and also the Middle East. But, and perhaps I'm a little bit simplistic, but it remains an organization of the North Atlantic Treaty, Macron said, referring to NATO's founding document. Whatever one says, geography is stubborn. The Indo-Pacific isn't the North Atlantic, Macron added. I think we made the right decision to stick to a close partnership, coordination and strategic intimacy, but not wanting to expand the areas of conflict because it's not the right time and it's not why we're here. Now, you can imagine how that might be a problem for the global regime from their perspective in the context of the current situation the world finds itself in. These are actually the sorts of things that will make the global regime want to put pressure on world leaders like Emmanuel Macron. It's the sort of justification they might need to launch a color revolution designed to take out that leader and replace him with someone who is more likely to go along with their agenda. We don't need to childishly pretend this is an issue about police brutality when all of this is going on And the color revolution playbook aligns with it exactly. 
Now, the other big news swirling around this NATO summit in Vilnius naturally concerns Ukraine and the possibility of Ukraine becoming part of NATO, which has always been extraordinarily unlikely. And it seems at this point that people are beginning to accept that. Now, over the weekend, Volodymyr Zelensky, the comedic actor in Ukraine, made headlines for an interview he did with ABC News's Martha Raddatz, where he addressed Trump's claim that he could stop the war in Russia and Ukraine within 24 hours. Zelensky said, it seems to me that the sole desire to bring the war to an end is beautiful, but this desire should be based on some real life experience. Well, it looks as if Donald Trump already had these 24 hours once in his time. We were at war, not a full scale war, but we were at war. And as I assume, he had that time at his disposal, but he must have had some other priorities. So Donald Trump actually could have already ended the war because the war started before Russia's very brutal invasion, according to the comedic actor out of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky. And if we can't trust Volodymyr Zelensky, who can we trust? It seems like he might be talking about that ethnic civil war that has been raging in Ukraine since 2014 that we are told is a conspiracy theory and has absolutely nothing to do with Russia's very brutal invasion. But it's not my words. I'm not the one saying all of this. The comedic actor is. The media, for their part, is framing his comments as an allusion to the years of tension leading up to Russia's brutal invasion. It was just years of tension. That's what he's referring to. His comments went on. If we are talking about ending the war at the cost of Ukraine, in other words, to make us give up our territories, well, I think in this way, Biden could have brought it to an end even in five minutes, but we would not agree. So let's think about what he said here, because the media is framing this as Zelensky smacking down Trump's idea. Oh, Trump is just lying. He's just a hothead. He's just a bloviating lunatic. He's saying he could end this war in 24 hours. Well, he already had his chance back when he was president and he didn't do that. And so the media assumes, therefore, oh, Zelensky's saying Trump's lying. He couldn't possibly end it. He had his chance back then and just couldn't do it. Except they're the people who tell us that there wasn't even a war back then. So what does Zelensky possibly mean? He then goes on to say, well, Biden could have ended it, too, in no time at all if the price was giving up Ukrainian territories. But Biden doesn't want that. And that's kind of an unfortunate thing for the media to have to report. Trump says he can end this in 24 hours. Zelensky said Trump already could have ended it, but didn't. The media says that doesn't even make sense. He's just saying Trump could never do that. Ignore Trump. He's just saying crazy things. But Zelensky says that Biden could. How is Biden in charge of when the Ukraine and Russia conflict ends? How does that have anything to do with protecting Ukraine's very sovereign borders and the lives of those brave Ukrainian citizens? It doesn't sound like he's saying Biden cares about the lives of Ukrainians. Are we really supposed to believe the regime's stories about how this will end in Ukraine are true? They're going to get back the regions in the Donbass, the regions that have 
voted through referenda to become part of Russia. They're going to get back Crimea as they continue to say. None of that is true. So what we have is Zelensky saying quite clearly the regime is extending this war indefinitely so that they don't have to surrender these territories. Breitbart is reporting today comments of Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. The headline of this article, no end to war until West abandons plans to maintain dominance, says Russia. Here is what Lavrov says. It will continue until the West abandons its plans to maintain dominance and its obsession with inflicting a strategic defeat on Russia through the hands of its puppet, Kiev. There has been no sign of a change in their position, and we are seeing how America and its accomplices are continuously pumping weapons into Ukraine and pushing Zelensky to continue fighting. The article goes on to say NATO leaders vowed after the first day of their summit that Ukraine's future is in NATO and shortened the eventual process Kyiv would have to go through to enter the alliance. But they did not offer a timeline on Ukraine's prospective membership, reflecting concerns in Washington about being dragged into a nuclear conflict with Russia. In a bid to reassure Zelensky, G7 nations are expected to issue a declaration on how they will help Ukraine defeat Russia and deter any new aggression in the coming years. So they have a plan. They're going to help Ukraine defeat Russia. But Ukraine just can't come into NATO right now again for the what fifth, sixth time in the last 17 months, almost since this began, we've heard an attempt to get Ukraine into NATO, and then a denial about Ukraine joining NATO. And one of the people involved in that denial that is upsetting the comedic actor to no end is the fake American president, Joe Biden. And Joe Biden's been over there. He stopped by to say hello to King Charles, both of them looking like decrepit old men who have no power to do anything, despite the positions they are at least ostensibly in. It seems like the current American president does not have much power at all, and it doesn't seem like the British crown has a whole lot of power either with the depopulator in chief in charge. I mean, sorry, the environmental savior against climate change in charge. Just a couple of very prominent Prussians barely able to walk themselves around while conducting the affairs of their nations. Now, apparently the comedic actor is not so happy about the fact that his country is not being immediately welcomed into NATO with open arms. He took to Twitter yesterday and wrote, we value our allies, we value our shared security, and we always appreciate an open conversation. Ukraine will be represented at the NATO summit in Vilnius because it is about respect. But Ukraine also deserves respect. Now on the way to Vilnius, we received signals that certain wording is being discussed without Ukraine. And I would like to emphasize that this wording is about the invitation to become a NATO member, not about Ukraine's membership. It's unprecedented and absurd when time frame is not set, neither for the invitation nor for Ukraine's membership, while at the same time, vague wording about quote unquote conditions is added even for inviting Ukraine. It seems there is no readiness neither to invite Ukraine to NATO nor to make it a member of the alliance. 
This means that a window of opportunity is being left to bargain Ukraine's membership in NATO in negotiations with Russia. And for Russia, this means motivation to continue its terror. Uncertainty is weakness, and I will openly discuss this at the summit. So now Zelensky is expressing his frustration with the global regime right out in front of everybody. It used to just be that he would be begging for money from them very publicly all the time. But now he's actually getting mad at their agenda and through him getting upset at their agenda, it exposes what their actual desires are, what their commitments are. This is not a revelation to us. But it is a pretty substantial problem for the people who have been strung along for the last 17 months, cheering on Ukraine and their Nazis and all the funding and the foreign mercenaries and the weapon systems and the possibilities that this might start World War Three. Those people are having a really hard time with this situation. All the little NAFO fellas online, that little social media info op to support Ukraine and annoy the hell out of anyone who does not support Ukraine, they're having a meltdown over all of this. And strangely, the comedic actor is saying nice things about Emmanuel Macron. He wrote on Twitter this morning, pleased to start a conversation with Emmanuel Macron. I am grateful to France for scalp missiles and other weapons that are so necessary for defense. We are discussing security guarantees, our common desire to defend freedom. I am sure the meeting will be meaningful. So on one side, we have that meltdown and it is being covered that way. The headlines are talking about how Zelensky is enraged that Ukraine is not being allowed to immediately join NATO. And on the other side, Putin seems to still be going strong. This is the opposite effect they want to have with the narrative they've been pushing. This is from Breitbart. On Monday, Kremlin, Putin met with Wagner warlord Prigozhin, offered a job after canceled mutiny. I mentioned this a few minutes ago, but let's go through a couple paragraphs of this. A top spokesman for Russian leader Vladimir Putin confirmed on Monday that the strongman met with the head of Wagner private military company Evgeny Prigozhin on June 29th. Five days after Prigozhin led thousands of his soldiers in an abruptly halted mutiny against the Russian military. The spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, claimed that Putin offered employment to the Wagner leaders at the meeting, including Prigozhin. Prigozhin had been leading his mercenaries fighting in Ukraine, publishing regular messages condemning the Russian defense ministry for what he described as incompetence and corruption. In the handling of the year-long special operation to oust Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, that is not the intent of the special operation. And it's funny because Breitbart should be better than this, but they totally are not. And they often are not to the point where you actually really should be skeptical about Breitbart's angle. And it's especially noticeable in this article because... One paragraph later, they refer to Alexander Lukashenko of Belarus as a communist dictator, which is laughable while they still refer to Joe Biden as a legitimate American president when Joe Biden is a the communist and b the dictator. 
America is currently a banana republic proxy state of a global communist regime. We're not really in a position to be calling other leaders communist dictators, particularly when they're the ones who are acting in opposition to the global communist regime. The Daily Mail today ran this headline. World War Three is approaching. Putin's ranting ally warns completely mad West is boosting the prospect of all out global conflict with its military assistance for Ukraine. The completely mad West risks a third world war by supporting Ukraine. The former Russian president has claimed Dmitry Medvedev, now deputy chairman of Russia's Security Council and a Putin ally, said World War Three was fast approaching and the Russian invasion of Ukraine would continue. It comes as Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky welcomed new G7 security commitments to the country, but warned it could not be a substitute for NATO membership. Mr. Medvedev said the completely mad West has failed to invent anything else. In fact, it is a dead end. World War Three is approaching. What does all this mean for us? Everything is obvious. The special military operation will continue with the same goals. And those goals, as we just saw misstated by Breitbart, are not to remove Volodymyr Zelensky from power. They are to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine, to keep Ukraine out of those globalist bodies, and to maintain the independence from Ukraine and the globalists of that Donbass region and Crimea. They want to deal with the bio labs and the corruption and the money laundering and the human and drug and sex trafficking in Ukraine. Those are the goals. All Medvedev is saying is if the global regime does not relent, this will continue because there's absolutely no way that Russia is going to relent. And we have seen that that is quite clear throughout the entire time. So it's really just a matter of how far the regime chooses to push it. Now, speaking of Ukrainian Nazis and denazification of Ukraine, check out Roseanne Barr breaking the central narrative. Into it. I'm from the Ukraine. The Ukrainian, the Ukrainian, there is a large faction of Nazis. I don't know if you know this, but there's a large amount of Nazis in the Ukraine, and they actually killed my whole family. Um, I'm from the Ukraine, and they marched. My entire family, grandmothers, great grandparents, ten siblings out into the forest and buried them alive in the Ukraine. So I don't understand why everybody's Ukraine. Well, I do understand. And that's also what terrifies me. People better wake up and do some research on their own instead of buying what comes across on the screen. And I try to shake them up, Pierce. You're goddamn right I do. I try to shake them up and crack their their mind control programming. I do it for God. Well, here's what I would say to that. I don't agree with you uh, about uh, a lot of the stuff you said about Ukraine. I know what you said, and you're perfectly entitled to your views. I would say in relation to the suggestion that they're all a bunch of you Nazis. You haven't the seen pres- the swastikas well, well, on those Rosa, soldiers' on, arms. The it's President in the Zelensky news. himself is Jewish, so obviously he is de facto not a Nazi. I know, but he's not a good one. Are, are, are all Jews the same? For God's sake, talk about anti-Semitic. Just because the guy's a Jew doesn't mean he likes Jews or that he's doing anything good for the Jews. I mean, so what? Who cares what anybody is? That was the whole point of my tweet.
just because they're just because they're skin folk don't mean they're kin folk. You know what I mean? Just because they're the same color as you don't mean they ain't trying to lock your ass up. Wake up, people. Honestly, how can you not love that woman? Now, that's going to make headlines and it's going to make people mad. And people are going to say really, really terrible things about Roseanne Barr. But those words are going to get out there and people are going to hear them again because she's not crazy. That's not a conspiracy theory. That's how things are. Now, not only is Russia not backing down from their commitments to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine and deal with this problem, they're also making a bit of a show of it. This is from Reuters today. Russia to put destroyed NATO equipment on show near Western embassies. Russia plans to display NATO equipment it has destroyed in Ukraine outside the embassies of Western countries that supplied it. Parliamentary Speaker Vyacheslav Volodin said on Wednesday, the proposal to install burned equipment next to these embassies of those countries that send it to Ukraine is especially interesting, said Volodin, who issued orders for such a display to be organized. Russian officials have repeatedly criticized Western countries for supplying weapons to Ukraine, arguing they risk prolonging the conflict and causing further escalation. Ukraine has asked for weapons to defend itself and recapture Ukrainian territory occupied by Russian forces since Moscow's full-scale invasion in February 2022. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has been meeting with leaders from the 31-member NATO alliance this week in a bid to secure long-term security commitments. So they got the official story in there at the end. But think about what it is going to look like. Think about the optics of Russia taking equipment it has destroyed in Ukraine from all these different countries and taking that equipment, putting it right in front of their embassies. What are those pictures going to look like? You think about the embassies and how they raise the rainbow flag or the BLM flag. They're using all of that to make an optical statement to the world. We support this cause. We are down with the global agenda. We're into all of this. Look at us. Well, picture that. But instead of a rainbow flag and a BLM flag, there are just a bunch of burned out Bradley fighting vehicles and weapon systems dumped in front of the U.S. Embassy. What are those pictures going to look like when they reach American shores? The regime is not only getting beat in the real war. They are also getting beat in the narrative war and the optics war. They are getting beat in the information war because of a breakdown in cognitive infrastructure. That's how important control over the flow of information and control over the narrative actually is. And the control has been reversed from what it used to be. That's why they're freaking out. The regime can no longer sell wars to the people. Wars were one of their greatest systems of control. What do they have left? Basically just nukes and aliens. And those will probably be our final two tests to pass. But who knows? I'll probably end up being wrong about that because they'll have some trick up their sleeve. And that's going to be just fine. But for now, we know to expect nukes and aliens at least. Donald Trump released this statement yesterday. Joe Biden should not be dragging us further toward World War III by sending cluster munitions to Ukraine. 
He should be trying to end the war and stop the horrific death and destruction being caused by an incompetent administration. These unexploded cluster munitions will be killing and maiming innocent Ukrainian men, women, and children for decades to come long after the war, we pray, has ended. If, as Biden inadvertently admitted, the reason for sending cluster bombs now is that the United States is, quote, running out of ammunition, end quote, a great breach of classified information. That only further emphasizes the urgency of immediately de-escalating this bloody, dangerous, and out-of-control conflict. It certainly means we should not be sending Ukraine our last stockpiles at a time when our own arsenals, according to crooked Joe Biden, are so perilously diminished. There could be no more vivid proof that Joe Biden's policy of endless war in Ukraine has tremendously weakened the United States than the humiliating admission that the USA is now out of ammo, something our enemies are undoubtedly salivating over. This quote unquote admitted weakness is an invitation to enemies all over the world. Joe Biden is needlessly and dangerously leading us into World War III, which would be a nightmare beyond imagination, obliteration. We must stop this insanity, immediately end the bloodshed in Ukraine, and return to a focus on America's vital interests. Most importantly, we must completely rebuild our depleted military so it is once again so strong, like it was just three years ago when I rebuilt it that no nation would even think of threatening our people. We must have peace through strength. And in a short time, the presidential election of 2024 will produce that result. Now think about where we are going and think about what the kayfabe potentially with Ron DeSantis has produced. We have seen the anti-Trump argument in full from the Republican side. And the anti-Trump argument in full from the Republican side has failed spectacularly. It is clear to virtually everyone now that there is no Republican alternative. None of them. Not Ron, not Vivek, not Nikki Haley or Chris Christie or Asa Hutchinson or Will Hurd or any of the other also rans. There is no Republican alternative to Trump. And at the same time, we see that Joe Biden simply cannot get the job done. He is a doddering old fool, incredibly corrupt and compromised, and now everyone knows it. It's not just the Hunter Biden stuff. It's Joe itself, and people are understanding that. They are trying to tamp down the campaign of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. because he is exposing to Democrats that they don't want Joe Biden, that Joe Biden is untenable, and they can't consider the alternative from the Republican establishment, because there is no Republican establishment. Donald Trump has commandeered the Republican establishment, as have his supporters. There is no Republican establishment that can exclude Donald Trump. It's no longer possible, and that's on display for the country. So what options do Democrats have now? Can they shift to Robert F. Kennedy Jr., even though they've called all those people dangerous conspiracy theorists? Are they going to become conspiracy theorists themselves purely out of necessity? What choice do they have left? 
And as we continue on through this process, through the process of awakening and understanding people coming to terms with what the reality is and what the reality dictates we must do, who looks continuously better in the eyes of all those people who looks like the responsible one? Well, it's Donald Trump. And at the same time, they're watching Joe Biden's illegitimate administration weaponize the entire federal government against this one single man. What does that mean to them? What are they going to conclude from all this now that the cognitive infrastructure is breaking down? Are people going over to threads? Are they going to join these new censorship and propaganda platforms? No way. They might try it for a while and see what attention they can get. But if that's their game, then they're not going to be able to say any of the true stuff because the true stuff is going to get them censored and demoted in the algorithm and banned. And that defeats the entire purpose of attempting to get attention on that platform. So anyone who's even the slightest bit awake is not going to have a good experience over there and they will eventually leave. And the cognitive infrastructure they are trying to rebuild is going to fail just like the original infrastructure did. And once people finally swallow the Trump pill, the thing's pretty much over. This has always been the goal. What is going to happen when they realize Donald Trump is not their enemy and elections really are stolen? Those two facts alone, after all the COVID stuff and the Ukraine war and the insurrection and the censorship and the propaganda and all of it, understanding Trump is not their enemy and that their real enemy are the ones stealing elections, that's going to get us pretty much all the way there. That is a full mass awakening. That is us hitting critical mass in the awakening to the point where the country can actually solve all the rest of the problems. You see us marching toward this goal. This is the goal we've been talking about for years. I have been talking about us approaching this moment for the entire duration of my podcast, give or take. And that train is finally pulling into the station. We can see the breakdown of the cognitive infrastructure. It is beyond repair for their use. There is only one way this can go, and it's in the same direction it's been going. There is no stopping it. This is mission unstoppable. All we have to do is stick the landing. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range.
It's high noon! Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hot!